I pray that tonight you will hear this message not as a rebuke or a condemning statement, but rather as a warning, a kind of come, let us reason together discussion. You know, I want to start the discussion and end it with the scripture text from Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 27. And it says this, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. So, Father, I pray tonight that you would guide us, you would speak. Lord, I know that, uh, Lord, I was never eloquent to start with, and I'm not an intellectual. I don't have great ability. Uh, Lord, I just don't have it. In between chemotherapy and all the other stuff, Lord, my brain doesn't work like it used to. And so, Lord, these are your sheep. They've taken the time at a midweek, and I always really respect and thank you for the ones who come out in the middle of the week. They're so serious about you, Lord, most times. So, Lord, would you bless them uh, in spite of me, Lord, please, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, guys, this scripture should stir every American Christian to the core. For, guys, we are the rich young rulers of the world from God's vantage point. There's no doubt about that. We're more educated. We eat better. We own cars, and we live in homes that the majority of the world, you know, yes, the majority of the world only dream of. We have closets and drawers to hold all of our clothes. And I've been so many places where they may have two pairs of pants and two shirts, and that's it. And as you recall, this story The entire story of our text comes from a situation which involves a young man. We like to refer to him as the rich young ruler. He has power, youthful health, and wealth. And, you know, he's a religious fellow. If you remember the story, he's attending church, if you will. He's tithing. He's not involved in flagrant sin. He doesn't cuss at work and get drunk, you know, during the week or on the weekends. He honors his parents. He doesn't steal. He's not a liar. But he knows there's something missing in his life. When you read verse 17, it says, Now as he was going, talking about Jesus, as Jesus was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? You know, guys, you can almost hear the modern church pastor, not yours, but all the other guys that you see on TV and you read their books and you hear them on the radio, or even the church member saying, oh, brother, you know, you really need to stop condemning yourself. Stop being so hard on yourself. You're a good man. You know, God loves you no matter what you do or don't do. And that's the kind of thing we hear in music today, right? No matter how sinful you are, God's love never changes. And I'm like, you know what? I wish those guys would read the word, right? Because you can't just live in flagrant, premeditated lifestyle of sin and think you're good with God because you're not. But that's, what, that's the stuff we hear these days. And so, you know, this guy's obviously under conviction. There's something bothering him. He's got everything that his society says reflects that God is on his side, and he's blessed. And you can hear people saying, just relax in his grace. Enjoy the blessings God has given to you, the wealth and the pleasures of this life. Yet Jesus says, hey, you really want to know what you must do to inherit eternal life? You know, we're so afraid in Calvary Chapel and most of our movements that we're going to edge over into a theology of works. That we don't ever talk about the, that there is a continual statement of what we do reflects if we have faith in Christ. We're not working to earn salvation, but we certainly are working to prove salvation. And so, you know, remember, you know, this 
was the starting point of his discussion. What must I do to inherit eternal life? In Mark's gospel record, it says the young man ran up to Jesus and got down on his knees asking the question, what must I do? And it's kind of weird, isn't it, that Jesus didn't just simply say, you know, believe in me and repent. You know, just believe in me. No, Jesus first takes him to the law, the Ten Commandments. And he says, you know the commandments. You know, in Matthew's gospel record of this, Jesus says in 1917, if you want to enter into life or eternal life, keep the commandments. You know, guys, in other words, what is he saying? He he said there's a lifestyle that follows what is holy and righteous. There's a pursuit of holiness and righteousness according to the word of God. And if you want to enter into eternal life, this is the path. And it hasn't changed. We have the Holy Spirit living in us, right? We don't live by the law, which is a mirror that reflects our sinfulness and tells us we need a Savior. But you know what? That law still reflects the pattern of life that once you have the Holy Spirit living in you, you should pursue. Amen? And so, you know, Jesus isn't messed up in his theology. He says, you want to be ready for heaven? Then here's a lifestyle that reflects holiness. Here's a lifestyle that reflects you love God and your desire is to please him. This is how you do it. He says, if you want to enter, the, enter into life, keep the commandments. In other words, live a holy life, a life pursuing righteousness through obedience. Obey the Ten Commandments. And the young man asked a question that many of us would ask if you read it in Matthew. What does he say? Which ones? You know, I missed that till I read through this last. Which ones do I got to obey? Do I got to obey all of them, or is there just certain ones that count, right? Are we not like that? Lord, surely you don't mean all ten. <laughs> Come on, you know. Verse 18, back in Mark says, So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but, but one. That is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and he said to him, Teacher, all of these things I have kept from my youth. Matthew's record records the man's next words. What do I still lack? You know, guys, you know, the Jews believed, like the prosperity word of faith heretics of our day, that wealth and health was a sign that you had God's favor on your life. Sickness and poverty was a sign of God's displeasure with your life, and it was evidence of sin. That's why when the disciples saw the blind guy, remember they said to Jesus, who sinned, his parents or this man? Remember that? And yet this young ruler, rich young ruler, who's got every sign, every you know, tangible evidence that God is on his side and he's on his way to heaven, this guy comes and he says, what do I still like? You know, what do I lack? I'm religious. I've got wealth. Everyone tells me that I'm good to go, but I lack something, Jesus. What is it? Hey, you think about it, guys. Here's a young man, healthy, rich, powerful, yet empty and desperate enough to get on his knees before an itinerant, impoverished preacher. And I'm sure, you know, your pastor has explained this to you, but I'm sure you notice the words that seem so strange in verse 19, where Jesus asks, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. It used to confuse a lot of people, but then when you do your research, you recognize that the Jews of Jesus' day didn't call anybody good except for God. It was reserved for God. And so what Jesus is really saying to this guy is, you know, he's saying to the young man, why do you call me good? Do you see me as God? The ultimate thing he's trying to say to the guy is, 
Are you calling me God so that when I give you what you need to inherit eternal life, are you going to obey what I say? As though it came from God. He says the same thing to our lives, guys. You know, why do you call yourselves my followers? Why do you call me Savior and Lord? Why do you say that I am God and still take such a casual attitude towards me and my call to have no idols? To lose your life to find it. And guys, we do have idols. You know, I don't have your Facebook, so you obviously have been scoping on mine, right? Predators, man. But you know... You know, all you got to do is look on the, I told my own church this, you know, all I got to do is look on their, their Facebook pages to see their idols. You know, what pictures do they paint to the world about, you know, saved and unsaved world concerning what matters most in their lives? And I can tell you for most folks, it certainly isn't that Jesus tops the list. And I fear Jesus says to many of us, why do you call me good? Why do you call me God, Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say. The young man asked Jesus, what is it I need beyond my religious life to inherit eternal life? Verse 21, then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up your cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You know, I think it's so important for us to see, because Mark is the only one who writes it, where he says, you know, that Jesus loved him. He made sure we see this, because at the end of the day, you know the story. Most of you have read it, right? The guy is going to book. He's going to say, you know, it says that he was sad because he had so much stuff. We are the rich young rulers. This is us. This is the church in America. And the thing is, you know, Jesus is going to tell him, Everything has to go. And at the end of the day, the guy's going to walk away. And Jesus, in love with him, is going to let him go. You know, we have this so upside-down mentality about church growth now. Like it's all about you guys. You do realize it's not all about you, right? It's all about him. Secret sensitivity is just a demonic lie. It should be God's sensitivity. It never should have been seeker sensitivity. If the people of God would come up and worship God in spirit and in truth and pour their hearts out to him and repent from every bit of sin and come into church like, God, I am all yours. I am all yours. You deserve everything and your grace that you love me. I'm yours, Lord. Then those sinners who come into our churches, they don't need us to wax their car and give them pony rides. They would get caught up in the worship that you and I are in that's so real and they would want, I want what they have. But see, because they don't experience that, we have to come up with every kind of gimmick to get people to come. And then you got to have gimmicks to get them to stay. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm off subject. Anyway, Billy's on a rant. Um, so, you know, this guy's desperate for God, but not desperate enough when it came to his finances, his IRA, his nest egg, his bank account, or his vacation. And there's that pesky cross thing I'm always talking about in verse 21, right? Right here in the discussion of what must I do to have eternal life, there it is, the cross. I will maintain until the day I die that Jesus Christ in Luke 14, I don't have time to expound on it, but you know, when he told the guys, Mark 8, same thing. He's speaking to a crowd of people who want to follow him, and he says, 
Unless you take up your cross, you can't go with me. You don't bring people to Jesus with some kind of, you know, watered-down gospel and raise your hand and repeat this prayer, and then somewhere down the road you tell them you got to take up your cross. The cross is the line in the sand. For the Jewish person, it was insane. Take up my cross? I'm waiting for a Messiah to overthrow Rome and destroy the cross. And Jesus says, no. Take up your cross. The cross is the end of you. You die on the cross. Nobody ever survived the cross. Jesus said, take up your cross. You will die there. You'll be buried with me and raised to eternal life, a new life, being born again. That's what Romans 6 says. That and nothing else is salvation, guys. And so right here in the middle of the story of what must I do to be saved, Jesus says, sell everything because it's, it's, it's between you and me. And come follow me. Take up your cross. Die to self so that you no longer want those idols. And guys, you know, once again, people might say, why didn't Jesus say, just believe in me and repent as proof of your belief? And guys, that is exactly what he's saying. It's exactly what he's saying. The man's life was religious, and by all appearances, you know, he was blessed. Yet Jesus knew that he was living a life of idolatry. He loved his wealth and his possessions. Like so many American Christians, even, you know, in our fellowship. Jesus says, sell all your stuff. It's just stuff. And it's standing between you and me. Sell it. And what did he say do with it? You know, give it to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. The problem for most of us is we want our treasure now. Because heaven seems so far away. I don't have time to go into Isaiah where it talks about, you know, when we give to the poor, then your light will shine. You know the stuff. You know, what is a true fast? Nobody gives to the poor, lends to the Lord, you know, lends to the Lord that he's not going to pay you back. Yet we just don't trust him. We just don't really believe that heaven is really what it has been told to us, that as we store up treasure there, man, that's all that matters because that's eternal. Everything we own, everything else is just temporal. He says, give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure. Jesus says, let go of it all and take up your cross. Die to self. Die to this world. Die to this idolatry of wealth and possessions and follow me. And guys, if Jesus told us in Luke 14, at the very beginning, he says what? If you want to follow me, you must hate your father, hate your mother, hate your children, hate yourself. Right? Those are his words. And we know he didn't mean to hate We have the benefit of Matthew chapter 10 that gives us some clarification. But at the end of the day, what he's saying is you can have nothing above me. Nothing. Not even your wife. Not even your children. And if he says that about people, can you imagine how he feels when he put possessions above him? Things that will rust, things that will tear, things that can be stolen. Verse 23, then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You know, two times in two verses, Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. I remember years ago, listening to uh, Francis Chan, and he was talking about, he said, you know, I've spent 
however many years researching this. I've looked at it in the Greek, backwards and forwards. And after all of my study, you know what I come away with of this verse of how hard it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? He says, now I finally got the meaning. And the meaning is this, how hard it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) It's exactly what we do, isn't it? Try to find any way out of exactly what it says. And, you know, Jesus, you think about, you know, what he says. You know, Jesus is the one that it says in Scripture, through him all things were made, mountains and whales, grizzly bears and bumblebees and butterflies. He, guys, he can do anything. He, he made the lame to walk, the blind to see. You know, he, 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 he took and cast out demons. He spoke to wind and waves, and they were still. And so when Jesus says something is hard, that's a statement you want to listen to, right? And because we humans, you know, and, and pastors want to try and qualify what he means by hard, Jesus gives us a very frightening picture so that we understand just exactly what he means by hard. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, a few years back, maybe you heard this. How many of you guys heard this? That what Jesus was really saying was there was this gate in the side of the wall of Jerusalem and they would bring their camel there, and the camel, they'd have to get him on his little knees, and they'd unpack the camel, and then the camel would go through the gate, how hard it was. How many of you guys ever heard that? Okay. Well, hopefully, you never received that. It's a total lie. First of all, there's never been a gate in the wall of Jerusalem called the eye of the needle. Number two, if you were to believe that, then the rest of the context would make no sense at all, right? Because the guys would have just said, well, you know what? Yeah, that's pretty hard. We've seen that camel thing. I guess we better tighten up. That's not, exact, that's not ex- at all their reaction, is it? You know, what he's talking about is a big, furry, nasty, spitting camel going through the eye of a sewing needle. Because you can see, verse 26, you know, it talks about, and they were greatly astonished. Verse 24 says they were already astonished that Jesus had said it was hard for a rich man to be saved. And now they're greatly astonished because for them it is impossible for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And they asked, then what? How can anyone be saved? They didn't go, wow, you're right. Well, Jesus, we've seen that act, and it is tough. No, they say, how can anybody be saved? That's an impossible situation. Nobody can be saved. In verse 27, Jesus says, you know what? You're right. It is impossible. There's no way it can happen with man. But what is impossible with man is very possible with God. Guys, that's how hard it is for the rich to be saved. And yet, the aspiration to be rich consumes the lives of American Christians. Make no mistake, we are the rich rulers of this world. We are. If you look back to verse 24, it says, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. He he gives us two pictures. Guys, when it's time to give and your heart cringes, you know, know, many give the least they can after agonizing over what, you know, what can I give and still feel good about myself? Do you ever ask yourself why? If you struggle in that way? You know, are you looking at your kids and using them as the excuse for not trusting in 
God more than trusting in riches? Are you thinking of retirement? You know, trusting in your savings? You know, I have a guy, um, his name is Samuel Zadago, and he's up in the edge of the, uh, up in the edge of Burkina Faso, just below Niger and Mali. And the first time I sent a guy over, because I didn't want to go, I'll be honest, you know, this guy said, well, hey, you should come over sometime, Billy. Well, there was this guy in my church I didn't, I, I can't say that on, on the air. There was this guy in my church I sent, right? So I'm like, uh, let's see, who can I send? I'll send that guy. So I send him. And he goes up there, and, uh, you know, and it was miserable. It was terrible. And he says, you know, when we got there, he said, uh, Samuel and Mary were just about to start cutting these small, unripe melons because they were starving to death. And this guy is not, you know, he's on the edge. I'm telling you, it is out in the middle of nowhere, desert land. And there's, a, there's this crazy-looking mud town, and it's melting away from wind and rain. And they would, you know, it's a Muslim town, and so he has to live outside the town. I've been there three times, slept out there. I took a team. My women had to sleep in the chicken coop. It's pretty funny. But they, you know, I've been there. And this guy's been out there where every time he would try to grow something, they would run their, the Muslim guys would run their cattle through his vegetable garden. They didn't want him there. They wanted him to leave. Water, go walk somewhere and stand in line, sometimes 20, 22, 24 hours, more than that at times, just to get water at, at, at a pump. You know, I mean, it's crazy life. And he's not from there. He's very Western. He's part of a tribe called the Masi trying to minister to a group called the Fulani. And he and his wife were out there suffering all these years. And not long ago, I, I was like, what am I doing? How stupid am I? I called a friend of mine that works with him. And, and right now, the Islamic guys have come in there, and they've run all of the Christians out of the area, except for Mary and Samuel. And Samuel's like, you know, I asked this friend of mine, Keith. I said, Keith, what do I got to do to minister to this guy? I said, look, we want to send him at least $500 every six months. I said, that's nothing, dude. We should have always been doing that. We supported all kinds of ministry through him, but not specifically him. And so Keith said, well, you know, Billy, uh, he's been talking about the possibility of retiring. And I thought, oh, that's weird, retiring. <laughs> he said, maybe you could build him a house, you know, wherever he goes to. And so I, I got back in touch with him last week. And, you know, he said, Sam, well, he said, I brought up this thing of retiring. And he said he held his head down. He was ashamed. Ashamed. You know what? He hasn't left. All the Christians have left. The Islamic jihadists are coming into the area. They're killing people, but he won't leave. Retirement's not on his radar. Listen, there's nothing wrong with retirement, guys, unless you retire. Shame on you if that's what you're doing with your life. Shame on you if you call yourself a Christian and you move to Florida and play shuffleboard half the year when people are going to hell all around us. People are dying. If you're retired, you know what that means? You don't need so much, right? You, don't, you shouldn't be eating as much. You don't need as big a house. So sell it all and start giving most of your stuff away. Get ready for heaven. That was just a bit of advice for you guys who are getting old. Listen. You know, the deal is, guys, I'm not asking you to give money to your church or to Tim or to whatever. I'm not asking you to do something that benefits the building or his income. What I'm asking you to do is to benefit yourself. You know, Paul wrote to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19, he said, Commend those who are rich. Command those, not commend, excuse me. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. 
Then verse 18 says, let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Verse 19, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold of eternal life, salvation. Do you see that? Don't miss it, guys. It's not like let them give a lot of money so we can put some gold stars on a board in heaven and they'll have crowns to throw down with the elders. No, it has nothing to do with giving and rewards for giving. It has to do with salvation. The story of the rich young ruler isn't just about giving. It's about salvation. I, I, you know, I'm only, last time I was here, when was that? Five years ago? So I won't be back. I'll be dead before five years passes, right? I made everybody mad last time. He didn't invite me back. I happened to be in town. He was lazy. So he said, can you preach? <laughs> I know what the deal is, because after I go, you'll all be going, wow, man, I'm so glad he's not our pastor. Tim, we love you. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> Who cares? I don't care. The rich young ruler is not about giving. It's about salvation. Paul's exhortation isn't about making them good givers so they'll have a crown to toss down before the Lord. It's about salvation, that they may lay hold. Do you see that? That they may lay hold on eternal life. We don't preach this because it's so close to the edge of works. Everybody starts hollering and crying. You think I don't know that I have nothing to offer to the cross? It's a finished work. But if I claim I believe in that, that he is the God of all gods, and he's called me to live like this, and I live in a way that's selfish and self-focused, who am I kidding? That's why young people, they see right through our foolishness. They hear our sermons, and they see our churches. They're not turned off to Jesus. They're turned off to the hypocrisy that they've seen in church most times. Guys, how hard it is for the rich man those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. We don't give it away. Why? Because we think he won't give it back to us. Bottom line. There's no other reason. There's no other reason. I don't think any of you sit down, you know, I don't think any of you lay down your dollar bills and look at it and go, you know, man, dude, George is just one hot man, and I love him, and I, you know, I, I like the way it feels, and I want it around. Nobody does that. Nobody's in love with the coin. We're in love with the security we think that the coin represents. And the only security you have is Jesus Christ. Up until two and a half years ago, dude, I was in great shape. I was surfing. Life was good. And it's gone. I'm a pathetic preacher now. I look like an old man. You know, just when I got on board with the Coast Guard, I'm in uniform. And I'm like, you know, the guys are like, wow, how old are you? Wow, you know. And the next thing I know, I'm in the hospital. I've, I go from 190 pounds, you know, to 153, and I'm like, I didn't even want to come out of my house. I hate the way I look now. I mean, you know, when everything else shrinks, my ears look 10 times bigger, and my feet are swollen. I mean, if it keeps happening, you know, I've lost, I went from 6'2 to 5'10. Another year from now, I'm going to look like a hobbit. You know I mean? It's like, it's over with. You trust in your body, your gym membership. You trust in your bank account. What do, you, what do you got to trust in? Nothing but Jesus. But we don't give radically because we don't trust in God. Bottom line, there is no other reason. Well, I went to a Dave Ramsey. I don't know who Dave Ramsey is. I just know the name. And he told me I should use the Proverbs and store up. I don't know where these guys get this from. I read where Jesus says, before your housing, before your clothing, before 
food. Seek my kingdom and my righteousness. All that other stuff I'll take care of. But we don't believe that. It just quotes, it looks good on a pillow, you know. <laughs> Guys, listen. This is the end. It's my end, I know. But the rapture is coming. It's not, it can't be far off. If you think we've got to have Armageddon going on, that's not what the scripture says. It says, like in the days of Noah, a time that was so evil and so foul that God was grieved that he made man. Yet, it says at the same time, people were giving in marriage, being married, they were eating and drinking. So you had two things, a foul, evil earth, and yet normalcy. That is exactly the time we live in. If you're waiting and going, oh, no, I think it's got to get a lot worse. No, it doesn't have to get a lot worse. It's perfect right now. And he's coming. And I'm almost done. So if your indigestion is rolling, I'll be done here in just a second. So I beg you guys, don't listen to the foolishness of man, the wisdom of man that fosters our selfishness. Sometimes when we talk about giving and giving, you know, to brothers and sisters in third world situations and poverty, I've heard the most foolish things. I've heard people say, you know, well, it's all they've ever known. They're used to it. That is like one of the most moronic things you'll ever hear out of a person's mouth. I have a young man, and he was here, Brig. You guys know Brigadier. Ask Brigadier about that. I asked him one time, dude, these guys are running around on sharp shale rock in Zambia. And I heard a guy say, oh, they're used to it. And I just looked at him, Brig. I said, just tell me something, Brig. You ever get used to walking without shoes out here? He says, Billy, do you think when you get a thorn that big and it sticks to a black man's foot, that somehow it doesn't hurt the same that when it sticks to a white man's foot? I said, no, I knew that before I asked you. They don't get used to poverty. They're not stupid. They, with all of the information we have through cell phone and everything else, and everybody's got a cell phone, even the poorest people. You think they don't know what it is to have a better life? Some people will say, oh, well, they don't miss what they've never had. <laughs> man, I've traveled all over, man, top to bottom in Africa, the Philippines, India, top to bottom in India. I've seen it. It's ignorant, guys. Or the never, you know, the ever popular one that I used to hear all the time. You know, there are a lot of people here in America that need help. I just don't understand why you go overseas. How many of you guys have ever heard that one? Why do you guys give so much? And I always say to them, really? Wait, there's people suffering in America? Oh, yeah, people are suffering and you guys give all your money. Oh, okay, I'm sorry, man. You know what? Can you take me where you're working to relieve that suffering? Because we want to get on board with you. And you know what? They're not doing anything. <laughs> they don't know anybody who's suffering. They just don't want to give. And I'm like, hey, take me, show me. I'll get involved in your project to relieve suffering in America. But they, they don't have a project. Guys, listen. God has called us to give and give sacrificially and live like Jesus. We're not supposed to be finishing with fat bank accounts. And fancy houses. And, and I say all this, and my brother gave me this car uh, a while back. You know, he was trying to do something nice for me, and he gave me this, uh, this brand new Roush Mustang. Oh, my gosh, dude. I'm like, Lord, what do I do with this, you know? I mean, really. Everybody in the island has heard me rant, rave, and fight against the prosperity message, and now I'm driving this black Roush Mustang, right? And I, you know, I tried to trade it in on a Civic, but they wanted to rip me off, and I was like, Lord, what do I do with this? You know, guys, what if we moved our families or we were forced to move our families into a small, dirty mud house with a leaky thatched roof 
no running water, no electric, no toilet. You work all day laboring for $2 a day, when you can, and that's when you can find work. You know, the same staple food every day, no meat, something that's like, you know, grits and broccoli. You know, if you know me and vegetables, that would be pure hell. You know, I'd be like, Lord, why did you send me to hell? Broccoli and grits, you know, every day. That's what it's like in Uganda, in Zambia. Every day, same thing. Your children are wearing clothes with holes in them, even when it's cold. No shoes. There's these things called jiggers in Uganda. They're like little worm things that get up in your feet and they have to be dug out. You can't buy even one present for your daughter on her birthday or on Christmas. Your wife is in the hospital 20 miles away. If, if you don't walk there in the rain, she doesn't eat because the hospital doesn't provide food. You can't pay school fees, so your 12-year-old daughter works as a cowgirl roaming in the hills with big horned beasts. And your son, your child, joins you in labor carrying rocks and digging pit toilets. Your children cry out with fever, but you can't afford to take them to the hospital even if you could find one. How long, how many generations do you think it would take before you just get used to it? And it just becomes all you ever knew. One generation, two, three, five, ten. And I'm talking about the realities in Uganda. Zambia, Burkina Faso, Zimbabwe are much worse off. And guys, and we, that's not even touching on the persecuted brothers and sisters in prisons because they won't deny Jesus Christ. How hard it is for the rich man to enter heaven. Nowhere in the teaching of the grace and the completed work of the cross do we find this statement negated. Nowhere. I think as we prepare for his coming, we need to have in our hearts this statement constantly. You want something on your refrigerator? Take down some statement about blessing and put up how hard it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Let it dictate your life. Let it dictate your spending. Let it dictate what your children see so that as they grow up, they don't have as their number one aspiration to go to college and make huge money, but their number one aspiration is to give their life away, to live in a way that honors Jesus Christ, that causes everyone else to say, wow, you know what? I see so much messed up Christianity, but that's what it looks like right there to really serve Jesus. I had one more thing, but we're five minutes over already, so we'll, we'll stop here. Let me just say this, and you can check it out for yourself. You know, if you go and you read Matthew chapter 25, you know the, the, the teaching, right? The sheep and the goats. And if you read the very first verse, it makes it very obvious that it is after the second coming of Christ because it says when Christ comes in all his glory with all his angels. And I'm always blown away by this, guys. You know, I won't take the time to read or anything. I'll just add a little bit here at the end. But you do realize if that's true, if, if he's speaking to... to and some think it's the Gentiles that lived during the tribulation who didn't minister to the least of his brethren, the Jews. It's definitely after his second coming. And the church has already been raptured, so the church isn't being judged there. But it's irrelevant because it reflects God's heart concerning ministering to the least. So if this is true, and the goats end up going to hell because they refuse to clothe the naked, to give drink when they were thirst, to visit the sick and visit the imprisoned. If that's true and you think about this, he's holding them accountable who endured dodging the mark of the beast. 
dodging 100-pound hailstones, dodging the fact that there were earthquakes that moved every mountain and every island. People who had to endure those, those things that came out of the ground and stung people, and you wanted to die, but you couldn't for five months. You were in so much pain. They were living in that kind of intense situation, and Jesus is still holding them responsible for the fact that they did not minister to people who were naked and thirsty and hungry. And if he's going to hold people under that kind of stress responsible, how do you think he's going to hold the American Christian, the richest Christian in the world, when we don't live in any stress. So at the end of this jolly service tonight, you know, it's not a condemnation message. I'm not trying to make you go, well, you know, unless you're living in wealth and you don't care, then you need to go home covering your head and repenting and seeking the Lord. But what I say to you is Jesus is coming. He is coming. And if he judged those guys under that kind of stress with heaven and hell, how is he going to view you and me? It's time for American Christianity to wake up and say, you know, okay, look, you know what? I have lived a religious life like the rich young ruler for a long time. God, would you forgive me? Lord, you tell me what I need to give away. You dictate my giving. And I'm not... You know, I'm not trying to twist anybody's arm. How ludicrous it is that we have to argue with people over tithing. (laughs) When we really need to give is everything, right? Tonight as we leave, maybe we just need to stop for a minute and say, Lord, empower me with faith. Give me a heart, God, that's completely committed that I would give everything to you that you require of me that I would truly trust in you more than my wealth and more than my riches, that I would stop looking at tithing as the mark. And when it's time to give to offering, and I'm giving to third world countries, to brothers and sisters who are suffering, or voice of the martyrs, or you call me to go, and I see this situation, Lord, my heart is completely committed. We used to talk about praying, Lord, break my heart with what breaks yours. But you know what? People are not serious about that. But we can be. What a freedom, amen? I got saved, and the man on the scene, and the reason I survived Christianity was because of Keith Green. You know, if it hadn't been for Keith Green, I'd have walked off, because everything I saw about church was a joke. But that one guy, he wrecked me, and I hated his singing, I'll be honest. I was listening to ACDC and Aerosmith and Boston, and there's this guy, you know, all high, and I'm like, oh, dude. But then when I would read the words, and I would think, oh, every song was a sermon. Guys, are we ready to really commit? Or do we just want church with no boat rocking? Most likely the last time you'll hear me preach, right? But I pray something, something rests in here. Jesus is coming. Am I trusting in riches? Or am I trusting in my king? If you're here tonight, you know what? And, and, and real quick, I know, Tim, we're like five over, right? If you're here tonight and you're in a place where you're like, you know what, Billy? In all honesty, I know in my heart, I have not trusted fully in my king, my God, to the level that if he said, let it all go, take up your cross and follow me, I wouldn't do it. I know I'm not there, but I want to be. And I want to have clarity of what that means in my life. Then why don't you stand and let's pray together.
If you're here tonight and you're not there, then stand up and pray, man. Make it public to him in this place. You're not doing it for me. I don't count heads. I don't care nothing about that stuff. just want you to have the opportunity to say, Lord, help me. Help me, Lord. Help me to let go of this world. Help me let go of riches. Help me let go of, of my trust in these things and just trust you and give it all away. All right. Well, let's pray. Father, you are a good, good father as we sing. And Lord, I know that at the end of my life, at these times now, Lord, I see with so much more clarity because I don't have 10 years unless you make a miracle happen. Lord, I know that, Lord, this could be my last year. And my friend died in his third year and he was healthier than I was. And so, Lord, there's clarity and there's, there's a, a releasing of things that don't matter. And yet, God, I have struggled with this all my days. So, I, Lord, I'm not standing here as one who is arrogant or militant. I stand here as one who's saying, without the grace of the Lord on my life, I will trust in riches and self every time. But, Lord, we want to be a church that is surrendered. We want to be a people who says, hey, look, we're not just saying these things. These aren't platitudes of theology. This is our life. And we're on a great adventure with God. We can give it all away because we know he will supply our every need that we may continue to give. Lord, would you move through Calvary Chapel, Richmond, by the power of your spirit? Would you sweep out the dust and bring, Lord, just a revival of excitement, of the adventure of giving, of the adventure of knowing that we're lifting up souls and we're lifting up men and women who have no other way. Lord, you have not put us in America because we're something special. You put us here and you trusted us with resources that we might minister to the rest of the body of Christ scattered throughout the world in oppressive lands. Lord, use us. Use this church. Bless the pastor. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Thanks.